Are you still buying your meat from the supermarket? If so, you simply don't know what you're getting. Was the animal treated ethically? Was it fed contaminated grain? Was it chemically treated just before processing? If you care about your health and that of the animal, you'll want to know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, buying directly from the farmer solves for all these problems. Jake and Anne Walkie run Walkie Farms, a regenerative operation in Albury, New South Wales, raising beef, lamb, pastured pork and eggs to the highest standards of animal welfare, land stewardship and chemical free practice. I am excited to partner with Walkie Farm to offer you 10% off the entire Walkie range, from delicious steaks to sausages, lamb rocks, racks and even lard and tallow to replace your seed oils. All orders are packaged and shipped frozen to your door all around Australia. If you have a local farm, by all means, source from them. But if you lack easy access to regenerative produce, then Walkie Farms have you covered. Use code DRMAX at the checkout. That's D-R-M-A-X for 10% off. Circadian health is a bedrock of optimal health. No matter your exercise routine or how clean your diet, if you disrespect your light environment, you will get sick. Cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health disorders, autoimmune disease, thyroid problems are just some of the issues that can either be worsened or fixed with circadian choices. My 30-day circadian reset is a guided program to help you learn the basics of circadian health. For 30 days, we focus strictly on things like seeing every sunrise, spending as much time grounded as possible, taking sun breaks throughout the day, and blocking blue light and artificial light at night. When you join up, you'll get access to four hours of lessons on how to make key circadian changes, as well as weekly live Q&As. If this is something that you're interested in, then join up today because we start on June the 1st. And if you need some basic equipment, including blue blocking glasses and circadian-friendly lighting, then use my code DRMAX on bondcharge.com to grab all of these products. Now, on to the show. In one of the most important episodes of the Regenerative Health Podcast, I'm speaking with dermatologist and researcher, Professor Richard Weller from the UK. Now, we discuss sunlight, skin cancer, and the profound but clear and repeated findings from large population-based studies that increased ultraviolet light and sunlight is associated with less death, less cardiovascular death, and less cancer death. I personally believe that sun avoidance narratives have been some of the most harmful of the public health messaging, given the critical role that all the wavelengths of natural sunlight have for optimal human health. Professor Weller is doing fantastic work in educating and researching these effects and adding nuance and balance to these narratives. If you want to learn how to harness the sun to reduce your risk of getting cardiovascular disease, cancer, autoimmune disease, and your risk of dying, then check out my recently released Solar Callus course. This is the most comprehensive course to date that puts together the theory, the preparation, and the execution of getting sunlight in a way that is respecting your evolutionary biology. Now, onto the podcast. Okay, I'm sitting down again with world-renowned dermatologist, Professor Richard Weller. Now, um, 
Professor Weller, you have released some very, very interesting research that we're going to get to, no doubt, in this um, podcast. Um, but first, I think it would very much benefit the listeners who don't have necessarily a background in medicine or dermatology to even understand the, some basic physiology of the skin, and that will really set us up for discussions about cancers of, of those different um, skin layers and, and how they're relevant to disease. The skin is, you know, it's great. It's, it's uh, where we meet the outside world. Um, it's got, I suppose, um, a, a major role, which is to keep the outside out and the inside in. You know, it maintains moisture within the body. It keeps uh, the environment and foreign organisms outside. You know, it's that kind of envelope that wraps us up. So it's got quite a complex role. Um, it also has to do things like sensation. It has to help us, you know, touch and feel. Um, it has to do things like temperature control. So, um, you know, it's got a whole series of functions and it has to be self-healing. So it comes in layers. You know, the outermost layer, the stratum corneum, uh, is, is actually shed. We're continually, continually shedding skin from the outer surface of the skin. Below that, you have the the epidermis, layer, the, the, the triple-layered structure of the epidermis, these skin cells, which we will call keratinocytes, gradually move up. And over the period of about three or four weeks, keratinocytes, which have started off on the bottom of the epidermis, move up the surface where they're shed as uh, these corneocytes. Below that, you have the dermis, which is the kind of permanent supporting structure for the skin. And that's where the blood vessels and sweat glands are embedded. And then sunlight. So, so that's the kind of layers of the skin. And it varies in thickness depending on body site. Palms and soles very thick. You know, the face much thinner skin. Um, sunlight, UV, penetrates different levels through the skin so long long wavelength ultraviolet light ultraviolet a will actually penetrate through the epidermis down to the dermis whereas the uvb rays the shorter wavelength uv that makes vitamin d and causes burning doesn't penetrate as far just goes into the epidermis so um yeah and then, so I suppose the other thing to add, and as well as the keratinocytes, the main skin cells, you've got other cells like melanocytes that, that produce melanin that causes skin pigmentation. You've got cells of the immune system that you know, pick up infectious organisms or cancers coming in. You've got sens sensory cells. There's a number of other cell types, but the main type of cells are these keratinocytes, the skin cells. Great. And you mentioned that um, the, the UV light interacts and penetrates deeper to different levels depending on, on its wavelength. What are the mechanisms that the skin has evolved to protect itself from yeah. what we're both acknowledging is the mutagenic effects of, yeah. of ultraviolet light? Yeah, so so very interesting. So you know, UV hits the skin, and particularly the UVB wavelengths will lead to DNA damage and mutations. And actually the skin is continually facing that, and the skin is continually having DNA mutations that might lead to cancer. So it's actually evolved lots of ways of handling that because it's a constant thing. And I suppose, you know, the point to make about the skin meeting the environment, the skin meeting the outside world, is inevitably, if you're meeting the outside world, you're going to meet stuff that the body does and doesn't like. And, you know, UV can, can cause mutations. So 
it's well set up to handle that. So there's, there's a couple of things. When DNA mutations occur, which are caused by UV, um, there's a whole series of um, DNA repair enzymes. So the skin is continually um, detecting and correcting DNA mutations caused by UV. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, of course, is actually we're continually, it's a bit of a moving staircase. You know, you form your keratinocytes at the bottom of the epidermis. They move up over a few weeks in a shed. And that's actually a pretty useful process because any um, keratinocyte that might be heading down the route to a cancer is probably going to get shed. So you have this kind of, you know, sh sh shedding of the uh, stuff that might, that, that might cause problems. Um, you then also have the... Uh, the technique called apoptosis, whereby keratinocytes that look like they're heading towards a cancer, um, if you haven't managed to repair that DNA, it will undergo a process called apoptosis. The body spots that and says, oh, and it kind of knocks off that, that skin cell so it can be harmlessly removed. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of continual processes going on. I have to say what is really interesting is if you look at um, DNA, the number of DNA mutations in somebody with a keratinocyte skin cancer, a squamous cell skin cancer. And if you look at the number of DNA mutations with someone who's just got sunspots, you know, actinic keratosis, something that every proper Australian has on their head beyond the age of 40, um, actually the, the mutation burden is about the same. So it is interesting that it's not the number of mutations that lead to skin cancer. It's mutations that escape surveillance and being removed that leads to skin cancer. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I want to make the point that the ingenious uh, function of that sh continual shedding of those keratinocytes is in itself a form of protection against ultraviolet light. Um, yeah. Just like bark on a tree is, helps protect um, the, the living part of the tree. Yeah, indeed. And of course, the other thing is, is um, pigmentation melanin really counts. So, so melanocytes secrete melanin, and melanin absorbs UV. It's a natural um, sunscreen. And what's very interesting is if you look at a cross-section of the skin, what you see is you see a little cap of melanin, a little hat of melanin, which sits over the nuclei in the lower part of the epidermis, um, giving protection against um, UV damage. And of course, the real original Australians, Aboriginal Australians, have dark skin to handle the high UV loads. The, the problems we see are when white Europeans um, arrive on their convict ships 100 years ago, um, and um, without that natural protection. And that's where you see the UV-induced skin cancer and the skin aging. Um, you know, in peoples who um, you know, basically, if you walk to Australia from Africa over 20,000 years, that gives you time for your skin to adapt to that changing UV environment. If you spend um, eight weeks uh, on a ship um, from a, a British prison to an Australian to Australia, um, you don't get time to, to make those changes. The I think that gets to the heart of the issue, which is the... The, the deviation or the problem with skin physiology that leads to cancer. And I think the, the key issue here is that underlying what's going on is a mismatch between skin pigmentation, genetic uh, predisposition to having a certain skin pigmentation and latitude. And when it, when that is mismatched, then we are more likely to, to, to get these types of malignancies. 
I want to make a point about melanin because um, you mentioned that that it absorbs ultraviolet light. And for for those who have listened to my previous podcast that I've discussed melanin, and um, it is essentially a black hole pigment. It's not only absorbing uh, ultraviolet, but it's also absorbing visible light and basically everything on the electromagnetic spectrum. So and and Dr. Jack Cruz particularly has talked about um, the role of melanin in actually um, splitting, using, having an ability to essentially derive energy from from the um, from the use of melanin. So, I mean, melanin is so key. And um, the other fact, the fact is that um, it, it include uh, heavy metal chelation. Um, they include antioxidant ability. So, and the the I think what maybe isn't being emphasize as much is how multi-purpose and how useful um, melanin actually is uh, in the skin. Yeah, I'm unaware of those other, I, I've not, I know nothing about those um, other phosphonitrols. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's, it's in, important in uh, handling UV, which I know about. And of course, there's two main types of melanin. There's eumelanin, the black melanin, and then there's pheomelanin, the red melanin. I, I might say very usefully, um, in Australia, just last week, in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Public Health, a superposition paper was published by a bunch of excellent, you know, distinguished Australian uh, researchers led by Rachel Neal um, at the Berghofer in Queensland. And they have looked at UV advice risk-benefit ratios in Australia. And, they've, and they formally lay out how skin colour determines the risk-benefit ratio to UV. And so you have to consider constitutive skin color, your background skin color, uh, when giving correct um, UV exposure advice. And, and that's particularly relevant um, in, in your country when you have, uh, and, and northern latitudes, when you have people from the equator who have migrated north. And to give them the same advice as, as someone with a Fitzpatrick one pale skin um, makes you know ab- absolutely no no sense uh, at all. So I'm glad that that kind of nuance is is being um, added into yes. to the narrative. I, I'm, I'm absolutely right. I mean, the, of course, the other interesting comparison between our two countries. So first of all, absolutely right. Um, you know somebody from a high UV environment coming to low UV Scotland, utterly different from uh, a red-headed Scot in Australia. Um, the other thing, of course, is how you get the UV. So in Australia, you have high UV all the time, um, whereas um, here in the UK, our UV exposure tends to come in short, sharp bursts, you know, two weeks in the med in summer. So it's not just the amount of UV, but the pattern of UV, which varies between the two countries. And that it's interesting at the moment in the UK, we are also um, just uh, reconsidering our advice to UV. So the research arm of the NHS, the National Institutes of Health Research, is currently going through um, a big analysis of all the published data on UV benefits as well as hazards. And that's the important matter. And they're going to be drawing up their conclusions, um, I think, in around May of this year. And I'm interested to see. Uh, the decisions they make. I think, I, I, I strongly suspect they'll be acknowledging the benefits as well as the risks. Their advice for what we should do, I, I hope, will take into account the nature of UV exposure in the UK. No sunlight at all, except for two weeks in your summer holidays, effectively. Yes. And this is a point that you made the last time we spoke, which is that melanoma, and we're going to explain these different the, the different types of skin cancers, but melanoma is a disease of sun burning, not of sunlight exposure. And 
again, people who have listened to my previous podcast, I've talked about this concept of, of a solar callus. And what I have meant by that is the, the idea that gradual small amounts of ultraviolet light that essentially um, cultivates melanin production such that we're not in a position to get a raging burn. And, and that is essentially what people who are doing who are unprepared for sunlight and UV, maybe they, they, they fly from uh, Luton Airport uh, down to Ibiza and uh, with their friends, and they, they'll absolutely roast to a crisp. The, the, the point here that I think uh, the nuance that isn't in this narrative, in this dialogue, uh, is that these people have essentially atrophic skin with regard to the UV yield that they're putting themselves in and the environment that they're exposing themselves to. And perhaps if they had acclimatized that area through a process of gradual but deliberate but gradual UVB and UVA exposure, then they wouldn't have been in the position of getting a sunburn, but they'd also have built up sufficient vitamin D levels. And we know that vitamin D deficiency is a very, very common finding in melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. Yeah, certainly. Um, and particularly people with low measured vitamin D levels have a worse prognosis for their melanoma. People who have high vitamin D levels when diagnosed have, have better outcomes. Yep. So the, I mean, the epidemiology of melanoma, as you say, is, uh, interesting and complex. So when I'm teaching my medical students, I say, right, you know, is, is melanoma common in white Australians or white Scots? And they all say white Australians. The next question is, in Australia, is melanoma commoner in outdoor workers or indoor workers? And actually, the answer is indoor workers. And is melanoma commoner in the untanned or the tanned? And it's commoner in the untanned. So, and then, you know, why is this? Now, that's different from squamous cell skin cancers, one of the other. So melanoma is a, is a tumor of melanocytes. Squamous cell skin cancer is a tumor of the keratinocytes. <clears throat> now, it's, it's co much commoner than melanoma, but it's got a lower mortality. Um, and squamous cell skin cancer is a disease of chronic sun exposure, commoner in white Australians than white Scots, commoner in outdoor workers than indoor workers, commoner in the tanned than the untanned. So squamous cell skin cancer is a kind of proper old-fashioned cancer that's read the books. The more of, you know, smoking, the more you smoke, the more likely you are to drop dead of lung cancer, dose-dependently, you know, the more cancers you have. And it's the same with squamous cell skin cancer. The more UV you have, the greater your risk of dying. Uh, of developing and dying of it. But melanoma is not just, is actually a family of diseases, and they're all slightly different. So the, 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 the ones that are most diagnosed now, the superficial spreading melanomas and the nodular melanomas, are the risk factor there appears to be intermittent sun exposure and sunburn, particularly in childhood. There's that, what are called the acral melanomas, which occur on the palms and the soles. Those are the melanomas that occur in black people. They're rare in black people. They're rare in white people, probably about equally rare. They are unrelated to UV. So there is ultraviolet plays no part in their development. They've got a completely different uh, pattern of DNA mutations uh, than the UV-induced one. So that's a non... Sunlight plays no part at all. And the final and the least common, probably least maybe, you know, or a very uncommon type of melanoma is what's called the lentigno maligna melanoma. Now, that's actually a melanoma of chronic sun exposure. 
and it occurs on the face, which is chronically sun-exposed, and it occurs in old people. I don't think I've ever seen anyone less than 80 with one. And so it occurs on, on the face of really old people, and that is due to chronic sun exposure. But look, here in the UK, it occurs in really old people who've had decades and decades and decades of sun exposure. And interestingly, it's often quite thin and often has got pretty good prognosis because it's so, so thin. But yes, broadly, the melanomas that we see most of, the superspreading and the nodular, are diseases of sunburn, not sunlight. It's a fascinating implication. And that the, the, the reality or the, the, the questions that it raises in my mind are um, exactly what is, is going on here. And to what degree is, is it environmental changes that we are um, experiencing that are perhaps unrelated to ultraviolet, ultraviolet light? And I, w- I want to highlight a couple of more kind of pieces of this puzzle before we necessarily dive de- deeper into uh, into the, the the exact what we think might be going on. The you, you highlighted too that outcome in mel- mel- melanoma is also poorer in with vitamin D deficiency. So there's you know there's there's a lot of papers that um, I've managed to find um, that have simply been um, retrospective cohort studies that are looking at people who've had melanoma and as you say and those with the with a lower vitamin D level have a higher tumor mitotic rate they have deeper thickness all these outcomes that really predict a, a worse you know more likely to die are, are, are lower in in people who've a higher in people who have lower vitamin D and it it really makes me think that we need to be cultivating the vitamin D level in people who have a melanoma diagnosis, which paradoxically would involve more UVB light, not less. Yeah, so we have, we've got a paper on review at the moment. Uh, we did a big study in the, I presented this at a couple of meetings so I can talk about it because it will crop up meeting abstracts, but the papers in review. So we looked at the UK Biobank, uh, 400,000 people in the UK uh, followed, I mean, recruited back in about 2000. I was one of the subjects. And then they're being followed from then on. And a mass of data collected in all those of us who were subjects in terms of behavioral factors, uh, you know, lifestyle factors, health at baseline, masses of measurements taken on people. We're then being followed up. And of course, in the UK, we have universal health records, you know, the National Health Service, and we've got universal death records, universal cancer records. So you can link each of those people, and you know what their behaviors are at the start, with what happens to them uh, with time. And we've been looking at um, sunlight exposure and uh, how does sunlight exposure uh, correlate with um, death from any cause. And we we use two main measures of sunlight exposure. Now, the date you have to use the data that was collected. Um, We found the best measures of sunlight exposure were two. First of all, we looked actually at sunbed users, not so much because of sunbed use as because of the fact that we know that sunbed users are what we call sun seekers. We know that they sunbathe more, they actively go out in the sun. Uh, There's very good uh, data showing that behaviorally, people that use sunbeds are different from those that don't. Now, um, 
we had to correct for the fact that sunbed users are different in other ways. They're younger, they're more female, they're less educated, they're more likely to smoke, they're more likely to come from Manchester, et cetera, et cetera. So you correct for all of those factors. Um, and um, so you th throw in the corrections for that. Um, we, we're then able to measure their vitamin D levels, and measured vitamin D is a great biomarker for sunlight exposure. Vitamin D has a few narrow benefits. It prevents rickets. It may prevent progression of some cancers. It could be relevant to this story mechanistically. But most of all, from my point of view, vitamin, measured vitamin D is, a bio, is an excellent biomarker for sunlight exposure. And we found that the sun seekers, people who use sunbeds, do indeed have higher measured vitamin D levels. And you correct the vitamin D for obesity. I mean, you you put in lots of corrections to make sure it's an accurate measure and it's not uh, altered by any confounders. And what we found were these sun seekers um, had a lower all-cause mortality than non-sun seekers. In fact, they lived, they had, but they particularly, they had a, about a 13% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. They had around a I think it was about a 10% reduction in cancer mortality, including skin cancer. So people that got more sun were less likely to have any cause, less likely to have heart disease, less likely to die of cancer, less likely to die of skin cancer. And it's interesting that that actually kind of matches up to this data we know that people with who have higher measured levels of vitamin D when they're diagnosed, a great biomarker for sunlight exposure, have a better prognosis for their vitamin D. Now, that doesn't tell you the mechanism. Um, I mean, if, if you want to find a mechanism, if it's vitamin D, you do, you do clinical trials and you give people vitamin D and you have a control group, you know, half get vitamin D, half don't. And those clinical trials have been done. And vitamin D doesn't do very much. It stops people getting rickets. It may prevent progression of some cancers but the effect is probably pretty small. It's nothing like as big as the observational size of effect. You know, if you look at, you know, someone who's got twice as high a measured vitamin D level has a greatly reduced risk of, you know, uh, cancer death, for instance. But when you give people vitamin D levels to double the vitamin D level, you don't see the same size of effect. So it suggests, you know, the point is, um, I think the data is very robust for um, sunlight. I, I should say the other measure of sunlight we used, so the first one was sun seekers. Our second measure of sunlight exposure was how far south people live. Now, in the UK, unlike Australia, the further south you live, the closer you are to the equator and the more sun you get. And we found, dose-dependently, the further south you lived, the higher vitamin D level, straight-line relationship, thus straight line increased sunlight exposure and the further south you lived the reduced all-cause mortality reduced cardiovascular mortality reduced cancer mortality just the same pattern uh that we saw with the sun seekers the sunbed users and again we correct for confounders you know the further south you live the better educated you are the less likely to smoke the younger the more female you know etc so we correct for all of those factors but the story is consistent and it's the same story that Pelle Linkvist um in Sweden showed can't remember if we discussed this in our previous conversation but Pelle Linkvist did another similar study um in Sweden where he looked at uh recruited 30,000 Swedish women back in 1990 
how much sunlight do you get? You know, all sorts of factors. Corrected for all the confounders, followed them 25 years. And he, just as did we in the UK, showed that dose-dependently, the more sunlight people get, the reduced all-cause mortality, reduced cardiovascular mortality, just the same as us. So, so what we have repeatedly is when we look at North European cohorts, separate cohorts, separate countries, separate studies, the same answer coming out, which is that the more sunlight people have dose-dependently, the longer they live. It's a, a remarkable finding. And it is truly, I mean, it's groundbreaking. And the fact that it's, you've repeated a, a finding that Linquist et al. found in 2016 makes the strength of that association even more important. And that is the Bradford Hill criteria. Is, is our observed finding repeatable? Yes, it is. I want to make a point about the vitamin D. And to me, this is the, the fact that you mentioned that you can't get the same effect um, on cardiovascular mortality on uh, cancer outcome by supplementing vitamin D. And this makes so much sense to me because the difference is between refined um, supplement and full spectrum sunlight is they're no way equivalent. And the fact that the vitamin D generated by um, full full UV in the presence of full um, spectrum sunlight is sulfated. The, the, it creates other vitamin D metabolites. So the, they're, they're, it's like chalk and cheese. And um, so that, that makes a lot of sense to me. The, maybe you can talk about how you controlled for um, these confounders in your study because epidemiology is a topic, especially in the nutrition world, that is fraught with confounders, things like um, recall bias, things like um, food, food frequency questionnaires. That there's, there's a lot of confounding in there and a lot of association that isn't able to basically give us the strength of, of conclusion that you have managed to find. So maybe talk how, about how you were able to ensure more robust um, validity yeah. of your findings. So, so all observational studies, uh, rather than interventional studies, are prone to confounding. So a conf confounder is something associated with the exposure, you know, sunlight exposure in this case, and the outcome, death. So, you know... Um, maybe people, you know, so do people that spend, people that spend more time outside do more exercise, you know, exercise reduces your risk of death. So, you know, you have to then correct for exercise. People are, if you're outside, you're probably exercising, exercise separately from sunlight. So that's a confounder. It isn't, you know, it's independently associated with exposure and outcome. So you need to correct for that. There is no, to correct for, conf for confounders, you have to think what that confounder might be. You can't say to the data set, tell me what the confounders are. It doesn't work like that. And actually, it means you as a scientist and doctor need to spend time going out and looking at how the world works. Spending your whole life in the library will not do it. So, you know, I have been down to tanning parlors uh, when I've been doing some previous research and just looked at who goes in. Because you need to think to yourself, hmm, what do I think might be different? You've got to go out and live life and think what that, those confounders would be. So we do that. And then, of course, in the data, you then need to see. So, for instance, uh, tanning bed users are younger and more female. You need to, and being female is very good for you. And being young is very good for you. So um, both of those are very healthy things to have. Um, 
you need to have that data collected in your database. So the UK Biobank collects gender. Um, it collects age. It collects activity levels. It collects diet. It collects smoking habits. So the date you, you can only correct for confounders if you measured it in the first place. So when you're drawing up a study, and this is one of the big things about doing these big prospective studies, if you did a questionnaire with five gazillion questions that covered every single aspect of somebody's life, yes, you're undoubtedly going to be collecting stuff that may be a confounder, but nobody will ever complete the study. So when you're drawing up one of these studies, there are lots of judgment calls. You need to ask enough questions to have robust data for later researchers to come along and be able to answer their questions. But you mustn't make the study so onerous that nobody goes into it. So actually, drawing up these studies is harder than you would think. You know, every question needs to be considered. So that's the first thing. How to handle those confounders? Well, there's two ways you can do it. You can either stratify it. So what that means is, say, gender, you know, male or female. You would look at all of the women that have some beds and don't have some beds and see, you know, do the sunbed user more or less death, and all of the men. And you'd see if the men, sunbed users and non-sunbed. So you would handle them separately and see if the answer was the same in both cases. Now, the fact that women tend to live longer than men doesn't matter because you've looked at the women separately from the men, but you've, but you've uh, looked for the sunbed factor. So, so stratification is one way of dealing with it. The other means of dealing with it is you give a kind of mathematical weighting factor. You say that being female reduces your, your you find from doing you know complex statistics you find that being female reduces your risk of dying by five percent or something so you give a five percent correction factor to the men to make up the fact they're not women and that means rather than just looking at men and just looking at women just looking at smokers just you know if you stratify you've got to look at everything individually and go through it one of the stage. If you give a weighting factor to those separate confounders, you can do what's called multivariate analysis, and you can sort of combine the whole lot um, and see what the overall effect is. So there's, I mean, this is well established. I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I work with epidemiologists. This is their bread and butter. So that's how you do with it. Look, the other thing I would throw in with our study and it's important is we had our two measures of sunlight exposure. We'd, we'd looked at other stuff that was in the bar bank. So people were asked in the UK bar bank, how much time do you think you spend outside? And the problem is everybody in summer said two hours. Everybody. And 80% of people in summer said two hours in summer, one hour in winter. Um, and that's because people think, oh, I go to work on the bus, you know, I walk, whatever, and I walk back. When we looked at their measured vitamin D levels, this great biomarker for sunlight exposure, it actually showed that that kind of self-estimate of what you think you might do wasn't very accurate, whereas sunbed users and latitude were markers. So back to my point, the way the confounders moved with our sunbed users was different from our how far south you live. So, for instance, the further south you lived, the better educated, and the more sun you got because you live further south, the better educated, the less likely to smoke you were. The more sun you got from sunbed use, the less educated, the more likely to be uh, a smoker you were. 
Some things move together. So sunbed users and people who live further south tended to be younger, tended to be more female, but other confounders moved in different directions. The point was these two measures, it wasn't as if all the confounders moved the same way. You know, the more sun you got from living further south, the more sun from being south, all the confounders moved in the same direction. Because then our concern is maybe there's a confounder we missed. Maybe it turns out that, I don't know, having brown eyes makes you live longer and people with brown... You know, we never considered brown eye colour and lifespan, and it turns out that brown-eyed people like that. You know, and it makes it less likely there was an unmeasured confounder, something we didn't think about, because the confounders moved in different ways, and it would be unusual for an unmeasured confounder to be moving in the same way. So, Yeah, thanks for that explanation. In When I was preparing for this interview, I also did a, a bit more research into the biobank, and I found another study that I think really, again, gives us another piece of evidence or weight to back up the idea that yours is a very, very valid finding. And the title of the paper is Vitamin D Status and Risk of All-Cause and Cause-Specific Mortality Results from the UK Biobank. Higher 25-hydroxyvitamin um, D concentrations are non-linearly associated with lower risk of all-cause cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality. So what that is telling me is that this is just a simply another way of looking at um, the data which backs up that the more sunlight people get and therefore the higher their vitamin D level, the lower their risk of the same all-cause hard endpoint um, mortality measurements as you found, um, Richard, in your study. Yeah. And then the other important thing to throw into it, so that we've got this great observational vitamin D, which I think is a biomark of a sunlight its main importance, is we then have the interventional studies. So the classic, the biggest one here. So you've done one in, well, New Zealand. Sorry, New Zealanders are different from Australians, I have to remember. So they've done a big study called the Vita-D study in New Zealand, and an even bigger study done in America called the Vital study. And these were randomized placebo-controlled intervention studies. So the Vital study in America, 25,000 Americans, half were given vitamin D supplements for five years, Uh, And they were middle-aged, so middle-aged people you like because they're more likely to start getting diseases and showing things up. Um, So 25,000 Americans, half got vitamin D supplements, half got placebo, and basically did nothing, you know, for five years. And the results are all coming out. Um, Absolutely no cardiovascular effects, no stroke effect. There's a whole list of negative findings. And the New England Journal of Medicine uh, in July 2022 published a there was an editorial attached to the latest negative study from the vital uh, study and it said look let's stop taking vitamin d supplements it's it's not doing anything it stops rickets we've known that for 100 years and it, it may prevent progression of some cancers the rest of it is pretty you yeah. know negative uh, particularly bearing in mind the huge size of the observational differences yeah. you know when you look at the effects on observational studies that is a really powerful relationship it's not some piddly little thing that you might just miss out in a trial it is a big relationship on the observational studies yes and, and not only in cardiovascular disease and cancer but also in autoimmune disease also in yep. infection susceptibility to, re, to respiratory viruses whether that was influenza or or the SARS-CoV uh, viruses. Yep. 
I want to make the point that unless clinicians realize and researchers realize that there is a difference between endogenously generated vitamin D from UVB sunlight and realize that um, there's a potential of improving health and vitamin D is simply the biomarker, as you've said, for how much sun someone has got. Yeah, look, I, I think for me, I think we need to be stepping back to where we were 100 years ago. I think the the epidemiology powerfully is that sunlight has, I'm sure, systemic health benefits. Vitamin D, as proven by supplementation studies, accounts for some of those benefits, the rickets, classically. Yeah. All we can say about the rest, it is a sunlight-driven, I think, non-vitamin D effect. Now, sometimes, I don't know, it's sunlight-driven. And I think the really interesting thing, and what I'm working on now, is what are those sunlight-driven non-vitamin D mechanisms. And it's really exciting, you know, because there is there are, there are all of these uh, health outcomes which are worse in winter. Yeah, and let's talk about that. Two, two points I want to make before we jump into that topic. One is, can you give a quick overview of what Pelle Lindquist found in Sweden? Because I think the the finding to do with smokers is incredibly um mm. accessible and, and hard hitting for our listeners. The second point is to what degree can we generalize your findings and Pelly's findings to Northern Europeans, say, living in Australia? Yeah, good questions. So look so Pelly started the top. Pelly's great. He's um uh he's actually an obstetrician in uh Sweden. So I mean I've I've been from inside the dermatology fold saying the emperor has no clothes. Pelly came along first. <laughs> Um, as, as an outsider, and I suppose it's an easier for an outsider to say that the emperor has no clothes. So, so Pelly um, was uh, looking at data on this study called the Melanoma in Southern Sweden study. Now, the title tells you what they were thinking about. They were interested in how much UV do you need to cause melanoma. They were expecting to find more UV, more melanoma, more death overall. So that was the expectation when they set the study up. So the study was set up in 1990. They recruited 30,000 Swedish women in southern Sweden, melanoma in southern Sweden, which is, uh, sorry, middle-aged Swedish women. Always go for middle-aged people because they're closer to death, and death is a great endpoint. Um, and it's, that was actually about a quarter of the population of middle-aged Swedish women in southern Sweden. And they were, they were sent questionnaires, and they were asked broadly four questions to assess sunlight exposure. Do you sunbathe in summer? Do you sunbathe in winter? Odd people, the Swedes, some of them do. Do you go on foreign holidays? Um, and uh, do you use sunbeds? So now there's obviously lots of confounders attached to that. You know, if you go on foreign holidays, you're better educated, so you're probably less likely to smoke, so blah, 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 you know, all the rest of it. But they, they corrected for all that. So they corrected for um, social factors, so they corrected for uh, occupation income. In Sweden, everybody publishes, everybody's tax return is published openly on the same day every year. So if you want to find out what your boss earns or your neighbor or the prime minister or your cleaner, you can look it up. America, I believe, is not the same. Um, so they looked at income, uh, employment. They then looked at social factors like education level, um, kind of things attached to that health factors you know obesity bmi exercise all of these factors were looked for they then followed them up for 25 years and went back to find well actually how many have got melanoma 
and how many had died. Now, their expectation was the more UV you got, the more melanoma and the more death was the expectation. So the first half of that, they satisfied. They found the more UV people had, the more melanoma was diagnosed. But they found that the more UV people had, the less likely they were to be dead. And there was a straight line relationship. So with your um, UV exposure habits, naught to four, um, those people that had the highest UV exposure were half as likely to be dead at 25 years as those goody two-shoes who followed the dermatologist's advice and lived in a cave, maybe popping vitamin D supplements, who knows? So this huge, great effect. The other interesting thing, and to put, Pelly went back and did a second uh, analysis, but to try and put this into perspective, how big the effect size was. So he found, so the worst thing you can do for your health until now has been smoking. Um, you know, smoking is staggeringly bad for you. Pelly showed that people that got the most sun exposure and who smoked uh, had the same risk of death at 25 years as non-smokers who avoided the sun altogether. So basically, the badness on your health of smoking is equally outweighed by the goodness of sunlight exposure. And that is a, you know, it's a powerful effect. The, I mean, the way society perceives people, you know, standing out outside a pub, you know, or a cafe, chain smoking cigarettes, and the way society looks down on that person, and and then to think the narratives around sun avoidance, slip, slop, slap down here in Australia, and you know, as you said, live in a cave, take vitamin D supplements, and you know, God forbid you ever get a square centimeter exposed to natural sunlight. It's incredible to see that disconnect in public narratives, yet the fact is those two behaviours, as Pelé discovered, um, are in a Swedish cohort, they're equally harmful, sun avoidance and, and yeah. smoking. Now, of course, this was in Sweden. Now, I don't know what happens in Australia. Now, where we have a problem here in Scotland is our sunlight advice is copied directly from your advice in Australia. So, and these are very, very different UV environments. So in Townsville, days of the year when the UV index exceeds six, you know, high, is 365 out of 365. 366 this year. But anyway, the point is, every day is a high UV day in Australia. So today, we're February the 22nd. Today, for the first time for four months, the UV index here in Edinburgh tipped above zero. It hit one at midday today for the first time in four months. <sighs> completely, completely different UV environment. And I think that what really matters, um, and your Australian guidance takes this into account, is skin colour. Um, and where you live. So I, our advice here in Scotland, where we have lifted the advice from Australia, literally, our Scottish government advice is if you're outside between 11 and 3 at midday, you should slip, slap, slop. What? You know, absolute madness. Now, I, I used to live in Cairns, and, you know, believe me, Cairns is different from Edinburgh. 
Perth, Australia is different from Perth, Scotland. Um, so it's not just the beer they drink either. So, you know, we, we have very different environments. And I, so I don't think we have all the answers. What I'm saying is we need to be reconsidering the question. And that when looking at sunlight, it's not just sunlight bad. It's sunlight has health benefits. What is my skin color? Where do I live? There is a much more interesting, I say complex, but actually it's interesting. There's much more interesting question that we need to be considering. The, the other thing I might quickly add in here, talking about this skin color, is going back to Pelly's work. So Pelly then went back and he looked at his Swedish cohorts and their sunlight exposure. And this, his cohort was recruited in 1990, before really immigration of any size happened to, uh, to Sweden. And it was a white-skinned, pretty much solidly white-skinned cohort. But he was able to look at the redheads, pheomelanin, and the non-redheads. So, of course, redheads are the palest of the pale. And he went and looked at sunlight and all-cause mortality in white redheads compared to white non-redheads. And what he found was that when he looked at Swedes who avoided the sun, those people that got naught or one on their sunlight exposure scores, redheads lived longer than non-redheads. So in a low light, Swedes who avoid the sunlight, I mean, these are people who live in the gloom all their lives, okay? Being the palest of the pale gives you a reduction in all-cause mortality, gives you a significant survival advantage. When, however, he looked at Swedes that go out and get more sunlight, those that get three and four, that, you know, sunbathe and seek the sun, redheads lost their survival advantage. So what this tells us is that the palest of the pale have a survival advantage, an evolutionary fitness advantage, in a really low-light environment. So again, it confirms that skin color is really important for what amount of sunlight is optimal for us personally. Yeah, that I mean, that makes uh, a lot of sense to me. The I think that this, this is a prelude to our next part of the discussion, which is what is mediating these non-vitamin D health benefits of, of sun exposure. And it's really pitting and essentially the or putting things in perspective because as as we talked about previously um as as physicians as as medical doctors it's our job to synthesize a situation a clinical situation understand risks and benefits of every intervention that we offer to patients and be able to present that in a coherent way so people can make an informed decision and what i think we can think about sunlight is that is a medicine because it has these different wavelengths of ultraviolet, visible, infrared, and each of them are having a biological, um, biologically relevant effect. So the reason behind the sun avoidance narrative in Australia and in your country too, Richard, is that um, everyone is scared or has been scared, um, completely scared about metastatic melanoma. And I'm not diminishing the fact that that is a very, very scary illness, but if we're pitting metastatic melanoma mortality against all-cause mortality, cancer mortality, cardiovascular mortality, it's a shrew and an elephant. And we're still we, we, we're scared of the shrew or the little mouse 
which is, again, what Pelle Lindquist found in, in Sweden, yet we're ignoring the, the massive elephant, which is all-cause and, and cardiovascular mortality. So maybe share some thoughts on, on that topic. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, what we do as physicians, I would say almost our core skill is risk-benefit analysis. You know, whenever we do an intervention, whenever we prescribe a medicine to a patient, we, it's, it's, we don't even consciously do it. We subconsciously think benefits, you know, why am I prescribing this medicine? You know, you've got pneumonia, I'll give you an antibiotic because the benefits are it will cure your pneumonia and you won't die. The risks, well, you might get a drug rash, you might get an advert, you might get an allergic reaction, you know, and we consider that risk benefit ratio. And it's, I would almost say it's our core skill handling these often quite complex um, equations in our head in discussion with our patients. It's the core of what we do. Um, and for some reason, dermatologists have completely forgotten that when it comes to sunlight. They only consider risk, completely forget the other equally important side of the equation. And that is how, by concentrating on the true, we have missed the elephant. And, um, you know, you're about 100 times more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than melanoma. In Britain, in Australia, you have half as much cardiovascular disease as us, so the equation is different. I wonder if it's to do with your sunlight. Um, you know, so um, so uh, we, we, you know, we absolutely have to keep things um, in proportion, as you say. And unfortunately, dermatologists have dominated the debate on UV. Um, it's interesting. I'm now invited. I spoke at the European hypertension, the big European hypertension meeting last year, talking about sunlight and hypertension. Um, and it's very nice to be there with uh, hypertension doctors and cardiologists who were a little bit surprised to hear from a dermatologist because, you know, why would a dermatologist be talking to them? And we have very, we've had this rather compartmentalized approach. Sunlight is for dermatologists who deal with skin cancer. Blood pressure is for primary care doctors, clinical pharmacologists, cardiologists. Multiple sclerosis is for neurologists. You know, but whereas actually it turns out that UV affects all of these things and we, and we need to be considering all of it together. I mean, I would say one of the benefits of my training are that I started off doing internal medicine. I would say another big benefit is I also practiced in Australia for a year. Um, and that was, that was hugely influential on me, just in the back of my mind, you know, just, uh, um, I think I said this previously that, you know, Australians, you Australians live three years longer than us here in Scotland, twice the risk of skin cancer, but three years longer life expectancy. And always the story you've told us was it's because you're athletic gods, you spend your whole life running, surfing, doing things. And I discovered you're a bunch of bone idle, heavy drinking, hard living, smoking, bludgers, just the same as us in Britain. And you're not these godlike figures you pretend to be. So I can I could view your uh, immensely good health with a degree of I suppose interest now. How is it that these idle bludgers are so healthy? Yeah, and and that's why I respect your work and what you're doing so much, um, Richard, because you're you're really. The, the curiosity and the ability to see beyond the blinkers of your own specialty um, is what has enabled you to to essentially make such important scientific discoveries that I think uh, or rediscoveries because I think the health benefits of sun have, uh, are ancient and that essentially and bring this to 
uh, some sanity to a very, very one-sided argument. I think the point about the reduced cardiovascular mortality of Australians versus people of similar skin color in um, Scotland points to the fact that this UV light story is holding in um, in Australia. And although we don't have the data, I would assume what you found, what Paleolinquist found is still going to be um, applicable and externally valid to uh, an Australian cohort and th- therefore everywhere around the world. Yeah, and honestly, I would, I really would strongly, Rachel Lille, this super. What is interesting to me actually is that probably the leading country in reconsideration of sunlight's health benefits, not just harms, has been Australia. So people like Robin Lucas, Rachel Neal, um, fantastic, um, uh, Prue Hart, you know, Shelley Gorman, actually a lot of my closest collaborators and intellectual sparring partners, supporters have come from Australia. And it's fascinating to me that you from a country with lots of UV and a largely pale-skinned uh, population are the ones reconsidering this. Um, and I think everyone should go off and read this paper by Rachel Neal published this week in the Australian New Zealand Journal of Public Health, where you actually formally sit down and are really open to these discussions. So, you know, uh, advance Australia fair, you're doing some some great stuff there. Great. Well, I'll, I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Let, let's talk about these changes in, and, and maybe one more point, because I don't want to let, let this go because we have talked about melanoma again. What I believe, and maybe you can give me your thoughts on this, Richard, what I believe is driving the um, rise in incidence of superficial spread, spreading melanoma in young people, I think predominantly, in, in my opinion, is the advent of artificial light, the fact that people are spending their time mostly under isolated blue, narrow wavelength, narrow band, blue light without red, without infrared, and they've got disrupted circadian rhythms um, and they've got an ancestrally inappropriate omega-3 to 6 ratio in their bodies, um, particularly in their skin. So that, that's a lot there and we don't necessarily need to go into each one of those points, but I just want to put that, um, there's the studies I can quote and I've talked about in previous podcasts, but um, I just wanted to put that there um, as a, as a I mean, marker. I, the, thing, the thing I would I would really like to throw in here is overdiagnosis. Now, there's a difference in melanoma diagnosis and melanoma death. Melanoma death is a very robust endpoint. You've had a serious melanoma, you know, it's fatal. They, now, there's some... Um, Data from America here is tremendous. Fantastic paper by Adewale Adamson, uh, an American dermatologist down in Texas. And he had a paper actually in the New England Journal about two years ago where he looked at melanoma diagnosis uh, in America over the last 40 years. So the number of melanomas, predominantly superficial spreading melanomas, um, diagnosed uh, in America now are, are six times as many as there were 40 years ago. So a six-fold rise. Now, he points out in this paper that, you know, UV, you know, UV at most doubles your risk of developing melanoma. So say 40 years ago, they all lived in caves. Say now everybody got sunburnt and maximum UV, you would expect a doubling of melanoma at most. And in fact, there's been a six-fold rise. 
And he then shows that what determines your risk of being diagnosed with the melanoma is not where you live in um, America. You would expect, if it's driven by UV, you'd expect Florida to have lots more than Alaska. He finds there is no correlation whatsoever between how much sunlight there is where you live um, and your risk of melanoma. But he finds there is an absolutely tight, straight-line relationship between access to a dermatologist, how many dermatologists there are, how many biopsies are done. Basically, it's, it's overdiagnosis. And he then, he then shows that um, they took microscope slides from 40 years ago, which had been some diagnosed as melanoma, some diagnosed as funny mole, dysplastic nevus, not melanoma, and put them in front of pathologists today. And a significant number of those biopsies that were diagnosed as not a melanoma 40 years ago are, were diagnosed as melanoma when being looked at pathologists by now. Now, the problem is the only, only way of knowing if something's going to kill you uh, is to take half of it out, uh, sit there and see what happens. And you just can't get the volunteers, uh, nor can you get the ethics committee, nor would it right to do it. But there is no – the problem with diagnosis of melanoma is it's dermatologist looks at it saying, yeah, it looks like a melanoma. That's it. Pathologist, you do a biopsy, put it on a slide. Pathologist looks at it and goes, yeah, it looks like a melanoma. So the whole thing is based on an impression. Now, if you're diagnosing – a stroke. If you're diagnosing a heart attack, you do a blood test. You do the troponin levels. There is there is an unambiguous blood test which gives you a troponin level, which is a sensitive and highly specific indicator of a myocardial infarction. Melanoma diagnosis is always an impression. And the other thing about melanoma diagnosis, there are no prizes for missing one. If you say... Oh, it looks like a funny mole, and it turns out to be a melanoma, and it kills them. That is the end of your career, or it's a very expensive mistake. If you say, and it harmless mole, oh, it's a melanoma, and you cut it out. Not only, not only, you then have an incredibly grateful patient. My God, I had a melanoma. My life has been saved. Even if the reality of the matter is they never had a melanoma, it was just a mole. It was never going to do anything. So there, so the whole diagnostic shift it's not malicious but it's moving one way where it is wrong is in america there's been a big commercial change in uh melanoma practice in the last 40 years so in the u.s uh, venture capitalists have bought up dermatology practices and they have bought up pathologists and they've said revenue maximization now the more biopsies, so I want dermatologists to do more biopsies, a chargeable event, to feed biopsies to pathologists, a chargeable event, who can feed diag So there's been this financial pressure for dermatologists to do more, uh, see more, do more biopsies, um, and the whole, this huge, great commercial drive. So they've repeated this study. They've looked again in Australia. It looks like there is a degree of overdiagnosis in Australia, and I'm going to have to go and revise these papers. I'm, I'm at the moment trying to get the data for the last 40 years in Scotland and see if the same thing has happened here. Because here and in Australia, just like in America, 
We've had a big rise in the number of melanomas diagnosed, meaning dermatologist says, yeah, I think it is. Pathologist says, yeah, I think it is. That's the level. I'm afraid to say that's how it's diagnosed. There has been no change in deaths. And I am suspicious of the dermatologist's view that this is, thank God we're there saving lives if we haven't done it. I don't think dermatologists are chasing an epidemic. I think there is a strong chance here that dermatologists are creating an epidemic. And I actually think that is, I think overdiagnosis, to me, strikes me as a much more likely than factors we haven't considered leading to more melanoma. I don't think we've necessarily got more melanoma. That's that, my got it. Thank you. That's a very interesting perspective and, and one that I hadn't um, considered at all. But the the same thing has happened in Australia with regard to the incentive system behind billing and skin biopsy, and they eventually had to tighten up some rules and, and you basically had to – you only got paid if – uh, what what you biopsied from a GP point of view was was actually uh, a suspicion yeah, well, and uh, billing the but, government but, for it. I mean, this kind of thing actually has huge implications. In the at the moment in Britain, we are in the NHS is just falling over. So I have been a dermatologist for thirty years now. So when I trained, there were three hundred dermatologists in Britain. There's now seven hundred dermatologists in Britain. And our waiting lists are higher than when I trained 30 years ago. You know, the, the pressure we're under is hugely greater. And yet we've got twice as many dermatologists. Um, and in terms of practice, we've got amazing new drugs. You know, you treat eczema, fantastic new drugs. We no longer have hospital beds because we don't need them. It's got great new drugs. I think, I think we're doing things wrong. I think we have created a problem. I think we are cycling faster and faster to go nowhere because the more biopsies we do the more skin checks we do the more fake non fake word the more artificial epidemic we're creating and i think we absolutely seriously need to look at this again you guys in australia yeah i, I love australian dermatology uh research on uv in australia you, over in the burkhoff in particular over in queensland as a former Cairns boy, I'm very proud to say a Queensland group are looking at this. You're looking at this in fantastic detail, and I'm keen that we should be doing it here. For that Scotland. summary. So let, let's talk about these these non-vitamin D-related um, mm. illnesses or, or impacts because to me what I'm thinking that these are is autoimmune, all these autoimmune disease, these, this cancer, this cardiovascular disease, this is a sunlight deficiency. This is a UV yeah. light deficiency. That's that's how I'm thinking yeah. about it. Uh, these are... We independently showed the first major non-vitamin D mechanism by which sunlight um, improves health. So we showed that, or I showed that the skin contains large stores, storage forms, something called nitric oxide, NO, big storage forms this in the skin. And we then showed via some funky photochemistry how sunlight hits the skin and it releases NO, nitric oxide, from these stores into the circulation. So, so nitric oxide... Nobel Prize for Medicine back in 1998 went to the three Americans uh, who discovered NO. Actually, a Brit was there, but the Americans got the Nobel Prize. Anyway, um, so uh, and, and nitric oxide dilates blood vessels, lowers blood pressure, uh, and yeah, hugely important stuff. And we showed that stores of it in the skin, sunlight releases it from the skin into the circulation where it lowers the blood pressure. 
and I did studies. I had a number of studies. Uh, the most important studies were all done in man. I speak about in my TED talk, and we show how sunlight lowers blood pressure by releasing nitric oxide from the skin into the circulation. That, in terms of benefits from sunlight, that cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer in the world today. Not many people have rickets in the world today, vitamin D, but cardiovascular is the biggie. And that's my nitric oxide pathway and Christos nitric oxide pathway. So that's the big one. And that's really important. But I'm now, I'm keen to get a second new route up, you see. So um, there's then a whole lot of gene regulatory stuff. So super paper by a chap called Dopico, um, who actually then studied in Edinburgh, was, was, working, was doing his PhD in Cambridge. Um, and he did one of these great experiments where you do no active research yourself. You use other people's data. And he looked at studies where they'd measured whole blood transcriptome. So all the genes turned on and off in the blood. But he looked at it um, in a number of healthy volunteers done in about half a different studies where they were measuring gene transcription in the blood. Uh, half different studies done uh, around the world, some in Australia, some in Europe, some in the Gambia. But he analyzed the gene expression pattern in all of these healthy volunteers by the month of the year in which the blood was taken. And he showed that about 30% of all the genes in your blood show seasonal variation. 30%, a third of your entire transcriptome has seasonal variation. Now, we know about circadian rhythm, your 24-hour sleep-wake cycle, really important, a key human, you know, uh, characteristic. There is then a seasonal variation. And broadly speaking, he showed that anti-inflammatory genes are upregulated, are turned on in summer, and pro-inflammatory, inflammation-driving genes turned on in winter. So that was this first really, I mean, I think it's like 500 citations, really important study. What I am doing now is I do my experiments in winter, is we are, you can now do a, a technique called single cell sequencing. Rather than looking at the blood, you know, all the cells in the blood, and there's masses of different types of cells in the blood. There's red cells and white cells and platelets, but then within the white cells, there's hundreds of different subtypes. Each of those cells doing different things. You can now do a technique where you look at every individual cell type and you can measure in every individual cell every single gene, which the 30,000 genes humans have got, which are turned on, which are turned off, which are expressed, and how they're expressed. So staggering amounts of detail. Um, and we're taking healthy volunteers midwinter or in winter now. Um, we're just coming to the end of the experimental season because I've got a UV index of one at midday today. <laughs> um, so we're moving out of uh, no UV worth speaking of. Um, and we take blood from these subjects and we do single cells. So we look at all of their gene expression in all of their white cells. We then give them two weeks of solar simulator lamps. These are actually old-fashioned tanning lamps, which have the same spectrum as the midsummer sun in Melbourne, actually. So that's what we match it up to. So we give them the equivalent of two weeks sunshine in Melbourne. And we then repeat the bloods to see which genes are turned on and off is that, and which cell. Is that UV and, and, and visible or is that infrared, infrared <laughs> the, the, as well? Yeah, so, yeah. So, look, so it's UVA and B because um, 
that's one of the now, I think visible it's interesting so we know from the so most of our measurements of lamp output is based on uh, the spectrum of sunlight which leads to skin cancer. So we, when we use lamps for experiments, when we use lamps to treat patients with phototherapy, we uh, look at the sunburn-inducing abilities of a lamp because we know that the wavelengths that are most likely to cause sunburn are most likely to cause DNA damage, and most likely to cause skin cancer. So when we measure um, the, the output of a lamp for use in experiments, we weight it for how many, uh, you know, how many short wavelengths, you know, how much 300 nanometer there is, 3536, you know, weighted for how likely it is called DNA damage in that place. And when you do that, basically visible light and IR does causes no DNA damage, no doesn't make you go red, doesn't cause skin cancer. So now, of course, I, I don't know whether different wavelengths will have different biological effects. It may well be that visible light is having beneficial biological effects, and that's you know that's the next chapter. The, the point is, this is the whole field is unexplored because we've just said. Sunlight bad, take vitamin D tablets. So for 100 years, we've done nothing yes. except avoid the sunlight and take vitamin D tablets. And uh, absolutely right. So look, the, it, it, visible could have rolls, blue could have rolls, IR could have rolls. I'm concentrating on UV because I know that UV has a lot of biological effects. And when I'm spending a lot of myelinial experiments, uh, I'm, I reckon I'm most likely to get results when I've got a big biological stimulus. Yeah, and my criticism of the use of uh, narrowband UV, which is essentially what I understand most of the harm, you know, UV light demonization and therefore extrapolated to the sun harm narrative is based on, is narrowband UV, which is um, emitted for a lamp. But the, the point is when we're in nature, um, UV is always balanced by red. It's always balanced by infrared. Um, and we have Dr. Roger, Roger Schwelt, who's a, um, a US uh, intensivist, but is now branching into the light as medicine. And it, and it shows that um, red specifically um, regenerates. It has a positive effect on, on mitochondria. That's a known um, finding. And it essentially is preparing the skin for the, the later UV um, I, arrival. I, yeah. I have to say, I'm always cautious about, you know, effects on mitochondria and skin animal models. You know, I just, th those things suggest mechanisms, but you've got, th th you can't use them until you've shown it in man. And on my experience, you know, I've done mouse, I've done cell culture work, I've done mouse work. I do human work now because if it doesn't happen in man, it, you know, what matters in man matters far more. The other thing I'd say about narrowband is that actually it's narrowband is remarkably safe. So the 311 nanometers, the shorter the wavelengths, when you're down at um, the shorter wavelengths, you know, shorter end UVB, that's where you're tending to get the burning. What we know from experiments in man, the best experimental model of all, um, classic experiments back in 1986 by Parrish um, at the Wellman Photobiology Institute at Harvard. The risk-benefit ratio for – so they were looking at different wavelengths of UV to treat psoriasis, and they showed the magic sweet spot where you get the most reduction in psoriasis for the least chance of causing sunburn, DNA damage, skin cancer – 
is about 313 nanometers. So actually, that particular wavelength, you get the biggest benefits for risk. So from that, they have developed 311 nanometer lamps. Now, 311 nanometer narrowband UVB lamps have been around now since the 1980s. We've got 30 or 40 years activity with them. Everybody getting narrowband UVB in Scotland is followed, is put in a big database. There is no increased risk of skin cancer shown in 30 years of narrowband UVB. I think that narrowband UVB lamps should be available without seeing a doctor, without any medical intervention, without seeing a nurse. I think they should be available open access. Tanning salons should stock them, I Mm. think, because there is no downside to them. And at the moment when we treat eczema or we treat psoriasis, we have a treatment, ascending treatment ladder. Avoid precipitants. Emollients and topical steroids, if that fails, move on to narrowband phototherapy. If that fails, you move on to systemic agents, methotrexate, cyclosporin. If that fails, you move on to expensive biologics. That is our ideal treatment regimen. The problem is it doesn't work because if your topical steroids, topical Dovonex, you know, calcitriol fails for your psoriasis or eczema, you're referred for a dermatologist. Well, in Britain, that's a six-month wait. I then refer you to my photodermatology department, photobiology says there's another six-month wait. So you're, you've got mild to moderate eczema. It's not getting better with some topical steroids. You need the next step up. Well, it's a year before you get your phototherapy. And so, so it doesn't work. So either you have dreadful eczema, dreadful, or you know, not dreadful, not the worst, but just bloody miserable eczema psoriasis going on for a year, um, untreated. Or by the time you get to see me, it's got worse, and we have to move on to heavier weight drugs, methotrexate. Sun. Now, look, we use these things really carefully. We're really experienced. We're brilliant at it. Nonetheless, these are heavyweight drugs need lots of monitoring. Or we move on to biologics hugely expensive because we have utterly restricted and over-regulated this incredibly safe and effective narrowband UVB therapy. And I think we should just remove medics altogether from this. Yeah. Like paracetamol when you get a headache. Yeah. You don't, if you wake up with a headache, you don't get a referral to a neurologist, six-month wait, <laughs> referral from a six-month wait. Here, have 500 milligrams of paracetamol. <laughs> of course we bloody don't. My, my, my criticism of narrowband is in the research setting when that is ultraviolet and then that is used to justify or um, demonize natural sun exposure. In terms of narrowband phototherapy, whether it's in the photobiomodulation, red light, infrared, and UV, that makes complete sense to me. That, again, is being used like a medicine, has risk-based benefits, and what you're describing – for eczema um, sounds very, very justified. To me, it would be cheaper and quicker if that patient uh, took a flight again down to uh, a more southern latitude, normalized their circadian rhythm, and uh, I, I believe their, their uh, psoriasis and, and eczema would probably improve uh, much much quicker than, than waiting for, for 12 months. I, I wanted to make a point um, about the the cardiovascular benefits of sun. And you, obviously, you're the pioneer of elucidating this nitric oxide dependent pathway. 
I think that, that the sunlight touches um, cardiovascular disease in so many ways that we're just you know, appreciating now. And um, ones that I've researched myself have been the presence of melanocortin receptors in, in the blood vessels and the fact that if you knock them out, um, you get arteriosclerosis, stiffening, endothelial dysfunction. Um, there's melanopsin, which you talked about the circadian rhythm. There's, there's non-visual photoreceptor melanopsin in the blood vessels and, and blue light mediates photorelaxation of the vessels. Um, and then a biggest point that I don't think anyone is talking about, not in cardiology um, and nowhere else, is the work of Dr. Gerald Pollock, which showed that there's a biological um, water, a fourth phase water inside the, the, the blood vessels. And exposure to infrared light essentially potentiates the, this formation of a biological surface inside the endothelium or above the endothelium, above the endothelial glycocalyx. And that is an incredibly potent stimulus, not only to um, for blood flow, but also to protect the underlying um, endothelial layer. So I think nitric oxide is one part of it, but there's all these other things that are mediating the natural sunlight to f- benefit on cardiovascular health. Yeah, look, so, uh, I mean, there's different types of you know, epidemiology mechanism, you know, interventional trials. So so the epidemiology to me is, is pretty robust that uh, certainly, those of us living in Northern Europe, the more sunlight we get, the longer we live. I think for, for you know white skinned North Europeans in North Europe, that data to me looks pretty robust. Mechanisms, and, and it all has to add up. You know, it's not no single instrument tells you the whole tune. You need an orchestra, and you know all of these things have to play together. Um, we've then been able very clearly in human studies in man to show you know backed up by this animal modeling thing out there, but able to show that nitric oxide is certainly a really important causal pathway. Um, look, other mechanisms, you know, I, I, I almost think the key thing is we know that more sunlight, mechanism aside, uh, we know that um, more sunlight pretty robustly ties up with increased lifespan, reduced disease. The, and sunlight is available for free to all of us. And that, you know, we should be getting in to use that. I think we need to refine the message based on skin color and where you live. Uh, mechanistic stuff is important. I, 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 I only feel comfortable really talking about with the mechanisms that I know. Um, but almost mechanism plays second part to actually an effect. You know, we have here a biological effect. Um, and we needn't agonize too much over the mechanism uh, if we can show that increased time in UV reduces risk of multiple sclerosis, cardiovascular events, stroke, blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, uh, death from any cause. Yeah, and that's why your work is so important, really establishing that that overall um, finding, which is th- those mortality findings. That is the, the hard outcome. And then I guess, yes, it's it's up to other researchers and to, to work out the, the minutiae. Did you, um, I'm mindful of your time, um, Richard, and I think we've had such a great discussion. Um, if you wanted to make mention about the effect of sun on, on uh, immunity and disease susceptibility, but if you're, um, you've got to go, then that's fine too. I'm, I'm going to have to take my son to football. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, uh, so, sorry, this is uh, association, not Aussie rules, I should point out. Yeah. Um, so uh, he's not wearing a singlet running around the, the freezing Scottish uh, weather here. No um, Yeah, look, so I think, uh, look, seasonal diseases, big as a cardiovascular disease, very clearly seasonal. Interestingly, infectious disease, pneumonia, a very seasonal disease, disease. 
Um, uh, so I, some super work, Pruhart, um, out of uh, Perth, University of Western Australia, fantastic stuff doing that. Um, we're setting up some clinical trials um, that we're hoping to run in the United States using phototherapy to treat MS. Uh, you know, there's a whole field of things out there. Um, I think more than we have time to go on for now, I'm afraid to say. Thank you so much, Richard. And I can't wait to get this out to people and to share your very, very important message. So uh, yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, yes, keep continue uh, spreading the word, please. Okay, Max, fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.